to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I'm, I'm looking forward, as Ernie Ladd would say, sitting under the learning tree. Dan Sebastiana, Mr. Podcast Announcer. That's probably the worst Ernie Ladd imitation ever. Hey, that's all right. You know, you said we're getting ready to learn. We got one of the best minds in the history of the business. What is it you said last time? This is a second time he's been on the show. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got online with us? Yes, uh, we, we had this gentleman on three weeks ago, and uh, I mean, we did not even begin to cover his long and illustrious career. I mean, it, it could be, this could be the the uh, Dan and Benny in Les's ring show after this. So, very pleased to reintroduce Mr. Les Thatcher. Les, welcome back to ben, Dan and Benny in the ring. Well, I don't know if I can follow that introduction or not, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do my damnedest. It's good to be back. Enjoyed being with you guys the last time, and you know. I uh, hope it was entertaining for those that listened. We got a lot. And of well, go ahead. No, I was going to say we got a lot of good feedback. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and and what I think is great is you guys, you guys get into to questions other than just basic who's toughest guy you ever wrestled or th- you know things like that, and and I appreciate that because at some point you you. With things with those stand, what I call the standardized questions, it's almost like uh, I can phone this in. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's like you do it in your sleep, and it's and I I prefer to have to think a little bit myself, you know, and and uh, you guys you guys make me do that, so that's cool, and I right. I'm happy to be with you again. Excellent, as high praise. Well, after. Uh, after wait till wait you get the bill. Wait, wait till you get the bill. Then you'll talk about hype. I'm going to have to uh, start up with uh, labor ready as a second job. Right. Well, after uh, after hyping us up, Benny, for not asking any cliche questions, I'm going to start with uh, a common a question, question that's been floating around the Lex, uh, the sphere the last few weeks. Lex, since, you, uh, since you've been on uh, several weeks ago, we talked about it a little bit coming up, but since you've been on, uh, the Crockett Promotions aired their special, which featured uh, Ric Flair's famous last match, famous being a relative term. Um, I mean, he, he's already explaining away his performance due to dehydration, uh, making jokes about being intoxicated. And apparently he's also saying he's regretting calling that his last match. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any thoughts um, on what he's doing or how that's come, you know, what your thoughts are there. Well, you know, I, uh, I honestly did not want to see it, you know, and, and when I say that, I've known Rick since his, uh, he came to the Carolinas uh, after one year with Vern uh, in, in AWA, and I've known him since that time. I've worked with him uh, behind the scenes, worked with him in the ring, 
Uh, we've partied together. Uh, I consider him a friend, and I respect everything he's done in the business. But I did not want to see this because of the, uh, you know, the pacemaker and all he went through, with, you know, with the induced coma and all that sort of thing. I thought, damn, it just there was too much I thought could go wrong. And, and I personally, well, uh, you know, just retired Bill Russell's number six. Thank God, because he is the goat as far as I'm concerned of oh, basketball. But I was going to say, would I love to see Bill Russell again? Not at 90, no. But I'd love to talk to him. But if you want to show me some tapes from when he played at San Francisco State, and then the, uh, the, I, I saw him when I was breaking into business up there in '60 and '61. But uh, I don't want to see him now. You know, and I don't want to see any of these old guys. Uh, you know, I have respect and, and uh, care for them all, but uh, I, I don't want to see them at less than what I saw them when they were at their peak. You know, that's just me. Uh, but. Somebody had, uh, sent a clip of that show. I didn't. I didn't see the show. You know. I know it was a big presentation. He drew a hell of a crowd, um, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but that match, I honestly, by the end of it, wanted to sit down and cry. To be honest with you, I've felt so bad, and I don't want to remember him that way. And I say that with as much love and respect as I can have for a man. You know, and, and we've talked about in the past that I'm a, I'm a huge baseball fan and old-timers game, and that was one of my favorite, especially growing up as a kid. Um, I'd get to watch Joe DiMaggio and, and even Bill Dickey and all these greats, Whitey Ford, Phil Rizzuto, play baseball. But, you know, the expectation level was very low. You didn't, I mean, you didn't expect Joe DiMaggio to drag Bunt down the third baseline and beat it out. I mean, that wasn't going to happen, but... You know, if he swung and he hit one, I remember one time he hit one, uh, a ground rule double into the left field seats and the crowd went nuts. But like, you know, even if they struck out, so what? I mean, I think the problem, one of the problems was that the expectation was set way too high. And I mean, he didn't present it as any kind of nostalgia. He presented it that he was going to be a competitive wrestler in the ring with these other three guys. And I, I mean, regardless, he, I, honestly, even as an old timers match, I think it was still, I mean, like you said, just so sad. It was, it was. And I know other guys in the business and, it, and, and I don't think any of it meant it disrespectfully that they didn't want you know, to see that. I, I, I just, uh, it made me sad um, because like I say, I have seen that. Well, you know, I was there, I knew Rick, uh, Rick, Richard Fleur before he became the nature boy. You know, so, I mean, I I go that far back with him and, uh, you know, it's just, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to see it. And, uh, I hope he doesn't do it again. That was going to be just, my next question. I, do you think he will try? Because, you know, the whole de dehydration thing, I, I, to me is like, you know, now he can come back and say, well, you know, I really, I really wasn't at my best because I was dehydrated, but this time, boy, I'm really going to give a great show. I, I, I hope he doesn't do that. No, well, you know what? I can't, I can't see a crowd uh, drawing a crowd like they have on this show uh, with any expectations of it being any better. You know, I mean, uh, if he does it next year, he's a year older, right? And believe me, I'm older than he is. 
uh, you know, I don't get any closer to wanting to do a mother match. I get much, much, much further away from that. So yeah, it's, I, I, it's not feasible and I can't believe if they advertised it, that, I don't know. I, I, I think they'd be embarrassed to do that. I truly do. Well, and I, I don't, don't know. know. Have uh, either of you seen the clip of the exchange? And I, I, I don't even want to call them punches, but the the shots that Ric Flair and Carlos Colon threw at each other at uh, ringside at an event in Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah, I saw that clip too. Yeah, that's um, that was that was painful to watch. I mean, I get what they're going for, but it's. Hopefully that's it. Get your payday. Do some more car shield commercials and and try not to hurt. You know, because it's like Benny and I talked about before. Is is you get to the point where the line blurs and you start to actually affect your legacy. Pete, this is what people are going to remember, and not your Starcade match against you know Ronnie Gar- winning the title back from Garvin or or being in the cage with Dusty or any of that stuff. Yeah, I would have preferred the uh, match he and Sean had as the last match, as far as I could go. You know, that was a hell of a match. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I I hope he doesn't. And I can't. Uh, I don't. I think even if he had a glimmer of a thought of doing it, someone was was some uh, you know pull with him would be trying to talk him out of it. I think. I hope. Anyway, yeah, it's just uh, no, I. I I hope not. I, I certainly hope not. I uh, and you know I was honestly afraid. What like when he went face down? Of course, I realized I saw a tape, so I didn't see the match live, but could see his hand shake, and I thought, oh yeah. my god, you know, it just it was sad. It was sad, and uh, like I say, I. He's my buddy. I, you know, I respect everything he's done in the business. I've been a part of, of, of some of it, and uh, I, you know, I, but I, I didn't want to. You know, I just hope he doesn't uh, do it again. And I thank God that he's still in one piece and on his feet. Les, over the weekend, I watched one of my favorite movies, The Founder, with uh, Michael Keaton. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He plays uh, Ray Kroc. The, the founder of McDonald's and uh, at the end of the movie, I guess the, the, the McDonald brothers uh, sign an agreement to get a million dollars each. Uh, I guess they gross it up so that it's a million after taxes. And then the the uh, other part of the agreement is one percent of I guess it's uh, grosser net profits in perpetuity. And uh, as it turns out, that that part of the agreement was a handshake and uh they never got a penny of it, and I think the estimate was it would that would be worth about a billion dollars uh, if they had actually gotten it. So, um, but I was thinking about you know you with the t-shirts with Jerry Lawler, and if you guys got one percent uh, on all the gross uh, revenue uh, on on these t-shirts for the last fifty years, how much money do you think you would have made? Oh my God, uh, you'd be making this distance uh, probably oceanic call to my. <laughs> my my your island? Uh, yes in, in the Bahamas or something like that right yeah it god i don't know you know, talk about uh missed but you know when we did that uh it it 
again, we weren't entrepreneurs as such. It was, a, it was an idea and said, let's do it. And it worked. But we were still, all three of us still knee deep in wrestling. And I was even involved with the front office while I was in Atlanta during that time. Uh, well, in, in Charlotte as well, you know, with doing the magazines and, and television and stuff. So uh, it wasn't like any of either one of us could put in, you know, a 40 hour week, you know, around that and, and to see how far can we take this, you know. Um, at one point, we it, we came close to rich department stores in the southeastern United States. <clears throat> um, uh, they had their brothers knew somebody either in that family or whoever was a, an officer in the company at a pretty high level, I guess. And they had uh, taken a shirt or a couple shirts and gone to them and to see if they might want to put something like that in their stores where uh, Mid-Atlantic's TV hit. And, or even, you know, down Atlanta where uh, Jack Briscoe was, you know, was in there a lot as champion. So anyway, uh, but that never worked out. Had that have worked out, then probably, you know, we'd have set up and take notes, but it didn't. So opportunities that we, you know, you look back and think, damn, yes, I was a millionaire three times over. <laughs> I just never took the, took the time to figure it out. But it's been a lot of fun, guys. What can I say? Well, going back, you mentioned in passing, and, and we kind of glossed over it uh, the, when you were on the show a couple weeks ago, that you were NWA Rookie of the Year 1967. Benny, what was that 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 guy he he beat out for? Um, I, I believe his name is Terrence Funk. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, the Funks. Did, did that family ever amount to anything in wrestling? They, they I, I tried. I mean, you know, they did okay, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, no, Bobby Shane. Bobby, it was Terry Funk and Bobby Shane. I know when people say that, look at me, wow. And I said, yeah. Boy, did I get lucky. I said, they made all the money and I got the trophy. So. <laughs> well, actually, let, let me let me ask you to expand on that. Besides, I mean, the outstanding accolade and, and the fact that that's something that stays with you for the rest of your life. How, how did that affect your career? Was that a selling point or did that really not boost anything? Well, yeah, you know, I got um, when, when they told me that was what I was going to do. I was working. We were working out in the mobile office. <clears throat> Kirby Hall and I uh, had just come out of Louisiana uh, for Lee Fields and had moved down to uh, living in Pensacola, working in the Mobile uh, Territory. And uh, Eddie Graham and Lester Wells from the Tampa office uh, had come in, and uh, they took me aside on that Saturday night and told me about it and said, you know, we, we got a starting date for you in Tampa because, you know, Gordon's going to uh, present you with a trophy on TV there and so forth. So <clears throat> the deal when I got down there was uh, uh, to push, you know, Matt Suda was a mainstay there and he had just dropped us, not just, but uh, had recently dropped a uh, junior heavyweight strap back to Danny Hodge. And so the deal was once I got, uh, got established a little bit to start working toward if I could get by Matt Suda, I would get a shot at Danny. And uh, the story that uh, the office came up with is, you know, that I had 
idolized Danny, you know, from uh, young as a younger man and all that, which was fine, which I, I did idolize him as a growing man. But anyway, uh, so that was the deal. And it were, actually turned out uh, worked into tags because they brought Kirby in uh, with Matt Suda and I. Then Ronnie Garvin got in, involved. Uh, as, and then that came up with him and Matsuda. And so then my cousin came in and that started to, to evolve. <clears throat> so, but we never got, um, I think if I just stayed down there and uh, actually inserted myself, uh, been, uh, and what I mean by that, been a little more aggressive. Uh, but I'll tell you the truth at that point, to be in the Tampa territory with all the great wrestlers, uh, you know, because the territory is noted for its wrestling. And to be very honest with you, at that point in time, uh, I was 26 years old and um, had somebody said, well, uh, when you go into the Tampa territory, I, I'd have probably said, I'm probably not ready for that. And uh, so to get invited, and uh, the first guy I worked with became a lifelong friend God rest his soul, Don Curtis. And that's the first guy I worked with in Tampa. And I knew the history of Don in that territory. He and Eddie, you know, cut a wide path through there as tag team champions. And, and you know, he'd been a top baby face there for a long time. <clears throat> and uh, he was, uh, I wrestled him in, in Tampa the first night there. And we went to a time limit draw, and which was a big deal at that point in time. But, uh you know, it was, uh, but yeah, I, I guess it was, it, it was uh, good uh, publicity uh, to use for publicity. I mean, for the promoters, you know, to put something like that out. I don't know that it opened any doors. I, you know, I, I think really, uh, unless you're 10 feet tall or, or some huge, you know, guy that uh, moves like he's a ballet dancer, uh, then you can probably name your own price anywhere. But, uh you know, uh, you had to earn your spots, and I was still doing that. But I, but I think you know, in terms of advertising and, and uh, promotional use, it was it was nothing wrong with it. That's for sure. Uh, but I don't know that it it helped in any way. I think more importantly, you know, being able one one booker calling another one and say how. Hell yeah, you know, he worked well for us. He never was a problem. He did what he was asked to, blah, 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 you know. So that was usually the best the best uh, thing that you could get in terms of publicity, internally, that is. Les, one of the most incendiary things on social media or uh, debates about halls of fame. And I'm not just talking about wrestling baseball as well. You know, I, I, I always say like, if you could uh, post on Facebook, Pete Rose should be in the hall of fame. And then just like, turn your computer off, go to dairy queen, get a blizzard, come back. And there's probably 5,000 comments, you know, and there's probably a jihad in the room. People threatening, threatening each other, just, you know, a bodily harm, just cause it's such a, it's such a hot topic, but you know, baseball is very scientific though. You get, you, know, you get voted on by the Baseball Writers Association of America. You get 75% of the votes, and you're in. If you don't, you're not in. And, you know, the votes are published every year. You get to see who made it, who came close, you know, who didn't even come close. Wrestling is so nebulous, and, you know, it, it's just it's very subjective. And there's, But there's so many obvious 
people who, in my mind, belong. And I, you know, Dan and I talked about these names. You got Ivan Koloff. You got Dominic Danucci. You got Bobby Eaton, and you got another guy named uh, Les Thatcher um, that have not received what, the, in our you know minds and many many fans' minds, they're obviously like very past due. What's your thoughts on wrestling halls of fame? And I'm talking about both the uh, the International Wrestling Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame as well as the WWE Hall of Fame. Well, I think the WWE Hall of Fame uh, is political. Uh, more so, I mean, I think there's a little politics in everything, right? But I, I think the WWE is more more that than it, any of the others, uh, simply because it is, you know. It does. First of all, there isn't a physical WWE Hall of Fame, but second of all, uh, it's you know, uh, it is about working with the company. So there's been a lot of top people, or well, on occasions like uh, Bob Armstrong when they were in Atlanta, it made sense to put Bob in. I mean, not believe me, Bob could have should have been in anybody's Hall of Fame. Oh yeah. But, uh, you know the reason they put him in, not because. Because he may have spent five minutes with that company, but basically he, you know, never worked for WWE. <clears throat> but there are, you know, exceptions, obviously. But uh, I think the legitimate, what I think is legitimate, or if that's the word, I'm not sure it is, uh, is Waterloo and uh, what, uh, yeah, the International uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame which uh, Tony, had when he started the original one up there, and sadly enough, it's gone to hell, and I hope they get all those artifacts back, you know, and, uh, you know, put in good place where people can see them. But anyway, I think those those are the two that I would recognize. Um, and, and there are regional halls of fame and, and uh, promotion, you know, certain like ABC wrestling's hall of fame or, or something like that. So, which I, I think, I, you know, I think they're heartfelt, you know, not that, uh, it's going to, you know, up your uh, income, you know, Hey, he's in ABC's hall of fame. We got to give him more money. Um, but I think the two Waterloo and, uh, international are the two that I would like to say, it's not that I discount, um, WWE, but it's strictly, you know, uh, a promotional tool in, in many ways. I, I think the people in there, for the most part, are people that deserve it. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but uh, now if you're talking about, like, uh, the Observer Hall of Fame, um, I the, the thing that I don't believe in there, and I've made myself quite vocal, I mean, not that anybody cares, is... I don't put people in anybody's Hall of Fame, baseball, football, basketball, or roller skating, that's still in the sport. So that would, you know, and they do. Dave does. You know, you can put uh, you can put uh, AJ Styles in there, which I wouldn't say I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I, AJ's a hell of a performer, and, and after he's done, probably yes, put him in, but not now. You know, it's just so. That that would be the only thing that would disqualify, you know. But and uh, I don't know that the fans voting uh, is the biggest thing either, because I think there's a lot of guys from my generation that sh- you know that I see on on Meltzer's ballots 
that I would have that I have voted for, and uh, they have been you know left off because since they haven't got a certain percentage <clears throat> over so many years, then then they're taken off the ballot, and and really they they're more deserving. But then if you're 20 years old or 25 and you start watching wrestling when you were 15 or 12. Uh, then you don't have a clue who the hell those people are to anyway, for the most part. So that's why I think it should be a panel. Now, I know uh, when uh, Tony Bellano had the original Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame there, the one that finally went to Texas and then, to, you know, went belly up, uh, people were sent written ballots qualified wrestlers. I don't know. I don't know what made you, but I know I, I voted there a couple times, but I didn't know I was going to vote. I didn't know I'd be asked to vote. I was never asked to vote two years in a row. Uh, they'd send me the ballot, tell me when it had to be back. And that was the end of it. You know, I don't, uh, so, um, that, you know, I, I think that's, that's a good idea too. But yeah, I think, but, but for I mean I I'm not adverse. The fans' favorite is so and so, and that's great. That's all good. But uh, I don't know that that qualifies you for the Hall of Fame. Do Do you think uh, with Triple H uh, doing more for the WWE and you know Vince easing out that maybe some of the people that maybe perhaps Vince harbored a grudge against, like maybe like a Koloff or a Dominic Danucci, that maybe uh, you know Hunter would induct them. Uh, I guess there's a possibility of that. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't really know. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of the changes that are being made right now are changes that could have been made a year ago, two years ago. Uh, and you know, Vince wasn't in, into them. So, uh, I think as, as before we start recording, I mentioned, I think, I think WWE, is uh, going to get back on, tr- uh, well, you know, on track or on a better track than it's been on. Let's put it that way uh, with Hunter at the helm. Um, and I hope it does anyway, because, uh, you know, I, I think competition is good. And uh, I think they they need to play a little catch up. And I think they've got the talent to do it. It's just a matter of, getting some of the hokey storylines out of the way and, and, you know, getting a little more serious. So hopefully that'll happen. Like you said, uh, before, <clears throat> before we recorded going to almost what NXT was under him, that when it was still the heavy black and gold brand, bring it, bring yeah. that to a more mainstream audience, I think would be great. Sure. Well, I, you know what? I think, I think there's a place for legitimate, I mean, good professional wrestling, not professional acrobatics or professional comedy, professional wrestling. Uh, last week, I said on our show, <clears throat> the best wrestling match I have seen was Gable and Ziggler. They went about, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, but they did a lot of mat work. You know, both those guys are very uh, skilled amateurs, but they did a lot of nice switches, takedowns, and they included, you know, some what you would call pro spots. But hell, I said, give me two or three matches like that on your two-hour show, and you'll you'll make me happy. You know, but if I everything is is a run-in, everything's an acrobatic, everything's got too much comedy, uh, whatever. 
No, I, you know, I agree. I, I this, think this uh, past SmackDown had a intercontinental title match between Gunther and Shinsuke Nakamura that got, I want to say, 25, 30 minutes, it felt like. And honestly, that I could have seen that match on some of the territory tapes that I have. And it was the first time in years with it had a video package. It's the most important the Intercontinental title has felt in years leading up to that moment. And you could definitely tell because that was one of the reputations that Vince had is that he kind of lost interest in the mid card. And clearly they're trying to say, look, you know, these the Intercontinental title, the U.S. title, the tag teams, these guys that aren't in the main event can still be big draws and, and entertaining to watch. I mean, you know, I think some of the, some of the big events that I remember as a kid or watching the tapes and all, it was the, the match that was on second to last or, or the mid, the middle of the show might've been the one that I wanted to see the most of. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of little things missing, I think, uh, across the board today. Uh, I'll tell you what, this jumped off the page at me, uh, 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 Rodriguez and her little tag team partner. They were in, you know, they're in the uh, uh, draw at the tag team tournament. Yeah, the new women's I, tag team. Yeah, yeah, I forget who they wrestled. But anyway, I she's growing, really. And I don't mean physically, but, you know, as a wrestler uh, in the past year. But she looks good. I mean, she's got all the tools. Anyway. Uh, there was one spot in their match that she just she made, came in on a hot tag and lit that ring up. And when I say that she lit it up, you could feel the energy coming out of her. But the, more importantly, the reason you could feel it was her facial expressions, her body language, which is missing because so many people are so intent upon knowing every step and move throughout the match that you have to be in this place to do this. And, and so the timing is off and, and they're not thinking about body language and stuff, but she, and you could feel the people react to it as well. And I thought, damn, if, if I were still running, I had a school, I'd want to tape, take that piece of tape with the sound and, and run it back in, for the, for the kids over and over, you know, uh, at intervals, so just because it was just that special to me. Because, like I say, facials and body language and stuff like that is second uh, was second nature for us, and it should be for them. I don't care that everybody's smart. That nonsense. Uh, it's still it's a performing art. Okay, then uh, be an artist. You know. So that, uh, but if you get a chance, catch that. And I, and I couldn't tell you exactly where it was in the match, but it was just this one probably didn't last a minute and a half, but she lit that building up, you know, simply because of her facials and body language. And uh, you could just feel the energy coming off of her. Plus she was on fire. She wasn't walking through the motions. She was, she was on fire. Yeah, definitely. And that's and, my and, rant for tonight, guys. Damn it. No, no I, I agree. And that I think that whole show was great. And it's good to see in that somebody pointed out afterwards that this uh, this the, the first match in this tag team, uh, the tag, the women's tag tournament got more time than the entire Queen of the Ring tournament combined. I mean, you had you know, wow. 
one two minute matches in that tournament and here we are like you said 10 minutes with with hot tags with crowd reactions it's good stuff to see but if we can right, uh, right. I want to p- pivot for a second away from from wrestling uh mike mooneyham wrote a really good article about you a few years ago and he mentioned a lot of your nhra accomplishments we touched on it but really didn't get to talk that much uh, i was hoping you could tell us a, a bit more about your racing career yeah, well, I fell in love with hot rods, I guess, probably when I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, right? And uh, just, I don't know. Uh, well, I think most young males back then were, for some reason, car crazy to begin with, you know, but, but I just got in to hot rods and customs. And uh, so... And I, up to that point, I, you know, I basketball, football, baseball, and, uh, I walked away from baseball. Uh, I had played, uh, for the same, uh, manager from age nine to age 16. And, but at municipal D ball, which is the, the league that we were playing in at age 16 was, um, uh, on Sunday. And that's when drag racing was. And I had started this summer before drag racing at age 15. I, uh, I didn't have a driver's license. I couldn't drive on the street, but I could drive on the racetrack. And that first car was a 35 Ford, five window coupe with a 50 Ford uh, V8, flathead V8, aluminum uh, high-performance uh, high heads, aluminum intake, dual intake manifold with two Stromberg 97 carburetors. A uh, set of Edmonds uh, headers, and uh, that was my first uh, street car and race car. But uh, I, yeah, I was. Uh, we uh, raced NHRA tracks. Our club, Satan's Angels, was the name of our car club. And back then, in the fifties, uh, uh, National Hot Rod Association uh, had a car club division, and uh, we were a part of. <clears throat> excuse me, a part of that. And we had to have uh, a, a male uh, a, a, a adult advisor, so that uh, that was one of the entry uh, requirements to get into NHRA uh, club. And um, so my dad became uh, our advisor as well. But yeah, and <clears throat> I was an NHRA um, area advisor for a while, which is just like, you know, uh, you oversee things in NHRA drag strips. And our our car club, uh, along with six other clubs in greater Cincinnati northern and northern Kentucky, uh, formed the Southern Ohio Timing Association. And uh, we built the, the first and only drag strip within the Cincinnati city limits, uh, Beachmont Dragway. And uh, that's where I first uh, did anything in announcing uh, was up in the tower there. I, I uh, did some of the announcing because all all the members of all of our clubs, you know, worked at the track, and I raced as well. But uh, yeah, so well, <clears throat> I combined wrestling and racing uh, for a while. Um, I was able to, but then at one point, well, we, we were doing pretty well with race cars at the, at the, this particular point. Uh, we were racing the GTO, and we uh, won the uh, NHRA Division Three uh, B-Stock Championships, and we run at the Nationals, didn't do all that well there, but 
we had one of the best uh, cars in our class in, in, in the tri-state region. Anyway, um, but sponsorships were hard to come by. And so the race, you know, like I might be wrestling in some other territory, but I'd come back into Ohio, back to Cincinnati, <clears throat> excuse me, in the spring, early spring, so my dad and I get the race car ready. And then I'd wrestle, you know, around the, for, well, Barnett, and then it was Bruiser and Snyder, the head Indianapolis, and, and uh, Sheik had Detroit, so I could work for those guys during during that period of time. Then if I went back out on the road after racing. But then I started to realize uh, we couldn't get a, a huge full-time sponsorship for the race car. Uh, so, but then I also realized by coming home to wrestle, there were times I might be losing income because it, had I've stayed on the road in the, wherever I happened to be at that time. So it came down to, in 1966, I made the decision that, uh, had to give up racing. And so I did, but I love it. I mean, I listen, if I, I sit and watch NHRA, uh, uh, races on television and my hands get sweaty and <laughs> I love it. It's, uh, it's still in my blood, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's out of the question now, but I, I'd love every minute of it. Less in addition to watching the founder this weekend, I also watched the night of legends and wow. I mean, that's all I can say. It, it was amazing. Um, Everything about it, the matches, the you know the the award ceremony. Then you gave a a nice history lesson on on Knoxville wrestling. And the one thing I was amazed at is that how you and Jr. Uh, it, you you blended. How, how did you master that so quickly? I, I the only thing I can say honestly, I guess, is we're both pros. I mean, uh, you know, people have asked me. Uh, it was the same to work with Bob Cottle, the same to work with Charlie Platt, the same to work with Gordon, the um, same to work with Lance Russell. It's They were all pros, and, and I hope the hell I was too. Uh, probably the You know, it's funny, probably the only one I really was nervous to work with was Gordon initially, but yet he and I had become friends when I was in Atlanta, uh, in Tampa. Uh, in 67 and uh, in part two i should should tie that in uh in part it wasn't just about wrestling but about race cars because he was a track announcer at golden gate speedway in uh, st petersburg and it was part owner of that track and so and uh he had a 67 pontiac firebird with a with a v8 in it and i uh, so that was a common ground too, because I was a Pontiac man, and I was—I uh, forget which uh, what I had that year, a Grand Prix, I think. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I was—I was, I was kind of nervous to work with Gordon, uh, but everybody else—it was just—we um, were pros. I—I I, I don't know if I told you guys as as a story about uh, Terry Funk mentioning. Uh, Ross and I working together on that show, or did I? Did I tell you that story? Um, not, I don't think so. Go. Okay, well, you know, that was the first time JR and I'd ever worked together. I mean, we'd been introduced in the past 
you know, but this was the first time we'd ever sat down and shared a microphone. <clears throat> so anyway, at the intermission, we were in the back, you know, to get a drink and, and stretch out and all. So anyway, Terry comes up to me and says, I've been watching the show on the monitor. He said, uh, you and JR, that's the way a wrestling match should be called. You, he said, how long have you guys been working together? I looked at my watch. I said, about two hours. All bullshit, he said. I said, Terry, two hours, I swear to you. That's, you know, but uh, that was such a compliment because he thought, like you, you know, wow, you guys must have worked together for a while. Uh, but I guess it's, <laughs> I hate to sound like, I don't know if that sounds egotistical to say we were pros, but uh, I don't know what else to say, you know? Um, but there was like, there was like, it must have been like an instant chemistry then. Because, I mean, there was, yeah. you guys really, it seemed like you guys knew each other so well, you know, as far as your, your styles of announcing. Well, you know what, Jr. Uh, is the one guy that I've worked with. Um, and a few years ago, when he was, to, I guess, doing Q&As on, it, on his website, uh, somebody had sent in and asked what it was like to work with me as his color man. And he, his answer was, uh, in part, uh, I never looked at less the color man. I looked at him as an analyst. And that was the nicest compliment in the world because that's what I tried to be. Uh, like Troy Aikman is not necessarily a color man. I mean, he adds some color, right? Or, you know, any of those guys, any of those guys. Uh, but basically they're analysts, right? They're breaking down the game and stuff. So anyway, that was, uh, yeah, that's, uh, but, but yeah, they're all, uh, Lance the same way, uh, Cottle, oh, Lord, they're just, uh, and, and I mentioned Charlie Platt, who, uh, you know, uh, when I mentioned Gordon, J.R., Lance, and, and Bob, I said, if that's not uh, Mount Rushmore of Annette wrestling announcers, then I, uh, I'm a bad judge of character. Uh, and I'm proud to say I've worked with him. But I, I, in, in that same era, Charlie Platt, who did the Southeastern show out of Dothan, uh, was a small market, but Charlie was very good. I, and, and Charlie and I are buddies, and I we got to be friends by you know working together down there for a while. And uh, but yeah, he was real good too. But I think it's just you know you understand. Uh, but you know, a true part, Jr. and I've had this conversation uh, a number of years ago that we both feel that we were mentored by. Gordon Soley. And so if you stop and look at it, all these, all the guys that we have just talked about are basically advocates of that style. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's basically, you know, it's like, I guess, you know, if you were an actor, there's uh, the so-and-so the Steinberg method or something like that, right there, where you, you, if you were an expert at that, particular field you might say that that person trained at Steinberg I can tell by you know <laughs> they did this or did that so I, I never looked at it that way until you <laughs> we started talking about it but yeah maybe you know that could be it too I don't know but it was it was never a problem I you know uh, and, and I had some good color men uh, Luthez uh, knows a little bit about wrestling he was he was my so. color guy when we did, did the Savoldi show and Dutch Mantel worked with me uh, on Smokey. And, 
Yeah, and, and some uh, local uh, Phil Rainey, who started when I first took over uh, Southeastern here in '74. Phil was a local uh, sports guy, and but he did real well with wrestling, and we were partners for gosh, I don't know how many years here. But yeah, but I've been blessed to work with some good people in the ring and on television, and uh, yeah, I, I think. So you'll say, man, you've done some good things. I thought it's hard to do bad things when you're around people who are uh, masters of their craft. It truly is. It, speaking of the the Night of Legends, Benny and I, we talked about it before the show about just the details and and some of the stories. You went into some good detail regarding the history of the Tennessee area and now, correct me if I'm wrong on this one. Um, Nick Goulas ran NWA Mid America. Eventually, partnered with Jerry Jarrett. Uh, they split. Jarrett went into Memphis and formed the CWA, which is what you know one of the. Uh, I mean, that's the history there all its own. Um, after that, though, Goulas didn't last too long and went out of business shortly after the split from Jarrett. What happened? If you, if if you can kind of expand on that, what happened to to the Knoxville area? And what was uh, Fuller's involvement in all that? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Goul- it was Goulish and Welch, Roy Roy Welch, okay. Buddy Fuller's father, Ron Ron Fuller's grandfather, Roy Welch, was he and Nick were partners, and Jerry's mother was their office manager, Christine Jarrett, and uh, Jerry, I forget what, uh, what he was doing for a living, but anyway. He came to now. I was there at the time when he he first started there. He came in. It was going to be uh, going to promote, and then he got to where he wanted to wrestle. Our first referee, and then wrestle, and then you know got the Booker thing. But yeah, part of the deal with Nick is the yeah the whole partnership just never got to where it made sense, and that's why he went to uh, Memphis and. Uh, yeah, plus Nick was one to push his son, and uh, George, a nice kid, but uh, as a wrestler, he'd have made a great carpenter. Uh, he just wasn't wasn't a good wrestler, and his dad wanted to push him, and among other things, and, and it's just his product started to go down, and, and Jared picked up good talent, and of course Lawler helped make Memphis because he was a local boy, so uh, that was a big part of it. Now, when I first came to Knoxville in 68 uh, to work for John Kazana, uh, he used talent from this area. John could book any talent he wanted, and he also used people out of Nashville, which I, that's how I happened to get here to begin with. And then <clears throat> he teamed me up with Whitey Caldwell, who was uh, from Johnson City, up in the Tri-Cities, Bristol, Johnson City, Kingsport. And... Um, we hit the jackpot when John got TV in 69 and the rights, Don and Ron were the top heels. And, and, uh, in fact, the, the uh, one of the TV stations and, uh, did a thing here a couple of months, weeks ago on the history of some of that, but we, uh, we still hold a record, um, for the outdoor attendance at Joe Howie's amphitheater from, our, uh, the Wright brothers against Whitey and I, and we also drew four thousand people there in the rain. Believe it or not, that's how hot the, the that's how hot the angle was. And anyway, so and then uh, 
I went uh, I, I went to Canada in in '70, came back and, uh, briefly, uh, and then went into Tampa again, then the Carolinas with Danny Miller as a partner. And so anyway, uh, Ron bought uh, John Kazan out in uh, late late summer, early uh, fall of '74. Uh, and he he called, we we became friends in in Tampa in seventy one and uh, stayed tight. In fact, his uh, youngest youngest son, uh, I'm his godfather. And anyway, <clears throat> Ron called me and he said, I, I I'm buying Knoxville and uh, I don't know any much about television. I want I want a good TV show, so I've given you carte blanche. Build me a TV show. So. That started in November 1974, and so then he sold out to Barnett. Uh, I stayed on for a while. Then I went to went to Pensacola for Ron. Then Barnett sold out here to uh, Crockett, Blackjack Mulligan, and Rick Flair. Flair called me and uh, said, uh, "Channel 10 said they will continue to carry wrestling." The only thing they ask is we would bring you back because their relationship with you had been so good. And I said, well, make me an offer because I always liked Knoxville. So anyway, <clears throat> so I came back here and then they finally closed down whew, when 80, 80, 81. I stayed here and uh, out of here, I worked uh, the uh, in 82 and 83. Uh, the uh, was ran the tours for Georgia and Ohio, Michigan, and West Virginia. And uh, then I left here in 85, went back to Cincinnati. My dad had passed in in late in 83. And so finally I I wanted to get home. I was only four four hours plus from here to there to begin with, but I wanted to be there to help my mom. So anyway, I went back to Ohio then. Then I came back down. Uh, for Cornette, when was that? 90, I guess, or whenever. But I worked for Savoldi up in New England. That's when uh, Lou worked with me as my color man. And uh, I've been all over the place. Have I, have I left anything out? I don't know for sure. But that kind of covers Knoxville and, and television, I think. And, and uh, did Ron Fuller, he, he bought the, uh, was it Gulf Coast? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole idea, yeah, had the whole idea, the whole idea had the Poffos not started a promotion and started the war here in Knoxville, which all it did was killed the territory, period. Uh, what the idea was before that was to keep this territory and... And he was and by Lee out and, and for Pensacola, the Pensacola Mobile, whatever you, whichever territory you want to call it, the Gulf Coast. Okay, and so then the deal was going to be that we could switch, swap talent back and forth. It was a short, you know, you know, but you're working for the same guys. Like the crew here gets, uh, the, some of the guys start to get stale. Well, you know, we pick up the phone and call whoever's booking in Pensacola and. Say hey, let's swap out some guys and get work this out, and the guys plus the guys continue working for the same company basically, but he's working two different territories. So that was the whole idea behind buying 
Pence Cola to begin with. But then uh, when the war started, he saw the handwriting on the wall that it was going to be a struggle. And Barnett was willing to buy. So then he just moved the whole, his whole operation to uh, Pensacola. Gotcha. So, uh, Les, it, 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 we've, we've talked about so many hats, but here's one more. Uh, you founded the Heartland Wrestling Association, which was a developmental territory for both WCW and WWE. And I have to throw in my weekly baseball analogy because Dan would be very disappointed if I didn't do that. So uh, I'm thinking that your role there, because if you're doing developmental work, you're like a manager in the Florida State League. And at any given point in time, you know, you want to put the best players out there, but, you know, they might tell you that, you know, the, the parent team might say, well, I want you to play so-and-so because we have a lot of money invested in him. And, or, right. um, you know, with it, with you know, with five minutes notice. Oh, by the way, we're going to call up so and so, who is your maybe your big money draw. Am I am I close? Is that a good analogy? Yeah, yeah, you are. Yes. Well, and one of the things that I benefited by is I saw some of the things that happened with uh, Cornette and Danny in OVW. Right. It's like you mentioned, like you're working a hot angle, and all of a sudden they're calling one of those guys up. Uh. You know, so yes, you, you, uh, you, you know, you, you try to be, well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, Maven who won the first tough enough, right. Oh yeah. Maven mm. was sent, was sent to us. He came to us. And, uh, one of the stooges, uh, word got back to me that somebody who, you know, everybody's trying to put their nose up Vince's butt. So anyway, somebody, <laughs> you know, Les is not pushing Maven. And uh, somebody came to me about I said, no, Les is not pushing Maven. First of all, I've got, I've got a crew here that's second only to the top tier uh, of the main roster. And so Maven fits at the bottom of that in terms of using his name. Of course, we're using his name, but he's not ready to be in a main event. And third... I'm not going to start him in some hot program only to have somebody call on Monday and say, uh, hey, we need we need Maven for two days. And I've got a big match figured on Tuesday. So there were, you know, but yes, things like that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it was now I think it's more structured. Uh, well, now, obviously, because. The, you know, it's all it's all under roof basically. But uh, with Danny, with Danny and Corny and and and, and my, my place, uh, we weren't that structured. I mean, we sent in reports. I kept, you know, uh, like with the developmental guys. You know, I took role. Uh, if a guy was off, I uh, made a note why uh, that was sent back to the office. Um, I weighed the guys in it once a month, once a week, and that. You know, that record went to the office. And then our TV, we taped our TV at OVW on Sunday. And then Danny Davis, uh, he had all the editing equipment, everything. He he did the editing and sent, uh, of course, the master copy that we put on the air, but also a master copy went to uh, Stanford. And uh, so they got a chance to look at our TV. But now I understand that they, they've got to format their TV the way uh, Stanford formats theirs or something, and I don't know, but 
uh, it was fun uh, it, with us. It was, uh, you know, because we weren't structured that, you know, we were left to our own design more than, than it, uh, the way things are now, I think. You know, speaking of obviously developmental and other, other, you know, the, the training and what comes up from that, you've been training professional wrestlers for many, many years. It's one of the, the hats, as Benny said, would like to call it, that we talked about last time you were on the show. Uh, I mean, in the past, you've worked with Ricky Steamboat, Harley Race. Um, now, obviously, you run uh, Elite Pro Wrestling. Looking at today, we talked a little bit before the show about the, the talent, and you've mentioned how you think the programs are, are going to improve with new leadership looking at the up and coming wrestlers of today. What, for lack of a better description, uh, the clay that you look to mold, what is it you look for when somebody walks through the door and says, I want to train to be a professional wrestler? Well, you, you really look to see, <clears throat> I guess sort of underneath, uh, the, uh, exterior, and see if that if there's really uh, this guy is uh, or girl for that matter is there a heart into it that you know there really might be a passion there because there are people in the business today that are in it strictly for the money and they're good athletes so they they're able to be there uh, but you know to, you're looking for somebody that really wants it you want looking for somebody who's coachable because. This business is unto itself, guys. I've worked with athletes from all walks. Uh, and being a great athlete at a college level doesn't mean you'll be a great wrestler or a wrestler at all. You know, it's, it's uh, I've seen good athletes that couldn't get it. And some of the best guys I've trained had no real athletic background. It just, just had a passion for the business and willing to put in the time. And, and you know, of course, you got to have the mechanical skills and one thing and another, but, um, all that comes with time, but you want to be sure they're going to put their heart and soul into it because, uh, you know, one of the things that I told, uh, if, if a guy came to sit down, uh, in my office, you know, to talk about, uh, starting to train and having to bring his wife or his girlfriend or his fiance with him, uh, I would direct part of my conversation at her and say, um, now, you know, I, I want you to be aware that if he starts with us, that you're going to be sharing him with a mistress. And that mistress's name is professional wrestling. And you can't divorce her. You can't kick her out. And she's very uh, jealous. She's, she's, <laughs> yeah, she's going to be. Because if he is going to be good at this, if he's going to invest his time and his money, and uh, he's going to be good at this, then he's got to dedicate himself to this. And that's that's a fact. I mean, you either do or uh, you can be, you know, you, if you're a great natural athlete, you can still make a living. But uh, it's so much better if you really are into it, you know. And uh, that's what you look for. That's what uh, Nigel McGinnis had no athletic background. He may have played soccer a little bit or something, but he, he wasn't a – a big jock in England, right? Um, the only thing he, he, he did that worked well in wrestling is he taught himself to give a Ricky uh, Steamboat arm drag on his bed at home in England. He did. <laughs> he, he, could do, he could, I swear, he did. beautiful. He could do that before he could even knew how to take a headlock, for Christ's sake. But anyway, um, but you could see it. 
when I first met him, he was at Kent State uh, as an you know an exchange deal, and he drove down a couple of his buddies from college, and they came down, uh, and uh, we just got in the ring. To, I I don't mess around with people that's never wrestled. I mean that's that's silly. You know they're not going to be good at anything, but just to stand there, I showed him how to lock up, I think, or something. But you could just feel the, the passion that he. My God, I'm in a wrestling ring. And he said, I've got one more year at university, and then I'm coming back here to train with you. And I, I believe me, guys, if, if I had five bucks for everybody that ever said that, <laughs> you'd be, you would be calling my uh, estate in Bermuda or something, right? <laughs> but the fact was that here he came. He finished up another year at, at home at university, and here he came. Realize this guy, and while, while I'm on him, let me give him some accolades because he deserves them. The best he could get in, in a, uh, work was a six-month visa. And so he'd come and train for six months, and he had to go back. I know at one point he was sleeping on a mattress on his buddy's kitchen floor and working double shifts because chicken in England uh, was so expensive. And his diet, you know, to put uh, – he was – but he was uh, – he worked out at a gym uh, just a little north of Cincinnati, a buddy of mine uh, owned called the Power Station. Uh, Mike, the owner, was is a national competitor, and, and he he takes his bodybuilding the way I take my wrestling. If you're coming, bring your A-game or don't bother to come at all. And, so, I mean, Nigel was uh, – the diet was – you know what people say, uh, how, did, how did he get this to this point? He listened. It was – but my po- my point is – he was not a, you know, he wasn't coming off a great athletic background, but he turned into one hell of a worker, you know? So it's, again, it's a business unto itself. You can't comp- really compare it with anything else. And, uh, you find, um, you know, when uh, WWE, this, whatever they're calling this plan where they where all these college athletes, well, you're going to find the same thing with college athletes, you find with a bunch of high school athletes. Or no athletes, you know, a few of these people are going to make it and do well, and the rest are not. I mean, it's it's a numbers game, no matter what the person's background is, honestly. So, you know, there's so much, and, and you know, it's crazy um, if I say, well, this guy's got it, and you say, what's it? And I say, hell, I don't know, but he's got it, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not something you really put your finger on. I, I was looking for talent. Uh, I booked a year-long tournament in Los Angeles for a young man, and um, he won. We we won the best unsigned talent we could get our hands on. So, I'm looking at guys, you know, I didn't really had never seen before, and I happened to be watching ROH TV, and uh, I saw Adam Page. He was doing job for somebody. First time I'd ever laid eyes on the kid. But at that one match, I called Kevin Kelly and I said, uh, you got contact information on this kid. And Kevin said, yeah, here it is. He said, you see money in him, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. And uh, now I, I, he got beaten. At, him, and Adam, uh, him and Adam Pierce had a, a hell of a, a match in tournament. In fact, we brought them back uh, in a non-tournament match later in the year. But anyway, uh, but but I just saw something in him, right? I don't know. You know, you just, after you've been doing it this long, guys, you, you, it's, 
you know, you hear about a cop got a feel for this or, you know, it's just after 62 years, I, I know it when I see it, right? I guess that's, you know, but you, yeah. And the guy's got to be coachable and they want to have a good personality and they want a work ethic is important because this is not an easy task. You know, as the song says, if you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long, hard ride. Right. Well, let me ask you um, a quick follow-up. You meant, you said that uh, the athletic backgrounds are different. I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on what they've dubbed the next in line program, where the WWE has specifically targeted college athletes from wrestling and, and any, a whole plethora of backgrounds, but they're specifically going after talent that already has uh, a background, I guess, hoping to look for the next Brock Lesnar or someone like that. I'm wondering, do you feel then based on what you just said, that they're pigeonholing themselves, that they may have, that this, this program might've turned a blind eye to someone like a Nigel McGuinness. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I think so. I mean, there's nothing wrong with looking at those, you know, at college athletes. Uh, I've worked with college athletes again, that couldn't make it, you know, didn't, didn't get it right. They just, it didn't work for them. Uh, I had a young man, uh, who was really a nice kid. He was a, a varsity, uh, soccer player at university of Kentucky. So he played sec soccer in the varsity level. A good ass. So he must've been a hell of an athlete. He, he walked away from here talking, talking to himself, right? He just, he couldn't get it. And part of it was, I think he, he thought in part because of my athletic background, this should be a walk in a park, right? I, I mean, he wasn't arrogant or cocky or anything, but I think, and that's, that's the other thing too. It's like, okay, you were a soccer player. Okay. Forget all that because we got nothing to do with soccer here, right? It's, it's a whole nother thing. Um, I've seen guys that, uh, Worked with guys with great athletic backgrounds that couldn't hang, and then you know, like I say, and then like Nigel, who had no, virtually no athletic background, turned into a hell of a worker. So it's, uh, and I think part of it is, is the passion for this too, because I think you, if you talk to guys from my generation, Cornette will tell you, any of the guys, uh, most of us are in it for the love. I mean, we realized at some point, hey, we better make a <laughs> make a living at this too. We got bills to pay, but seriously, you know, hell, I give me enough, give me some food, man. When I was 19 years old and after my first match, just let me get, show me a ring. Let, let me wrestle. <laughs> right. When, when, uh, when Les Ruffin came to me and, and said, Barnett wanted to change my last name to Thatcher. Did I, my, you know, no, hell no. <laughs> as long as I'm still going to get to wrestle, call me anything you want. I don't care. Right. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's passion. It's, it's a drug. There is no rehab for guys. That's a fact. (laughs) There's no 12 step program for this thing. Absolutely. It is. Yes. Yes, Uh, Benny, as we wrap up uh, tonight, last question is to you. What are you thinking? Yeah, I I think this is a question that, that Les has never been asked before. So if, if Dan and I got into our wrestling wayback machine and traveled in time from 2022 
to July 4th, 1960. And we visited you right before you had your first match. And we said that we're, we're from the future and that, uh, you, you know, we can tell you that for the next 60 years, you're going to succeed as a, a wrestler, an announcer, a promoter, a writer, a trainer, not to mention uh, winning, you know, numerous trophies in, in drag racing and competing in, you know, high level bodybuilding. You know, other than thinking we were crazy and uh, calling the, uh, the state nervous hospital of Maine, uh, what would you have thought? Well, since I didn't know anything about marijuana back in 1960, I wouldn't have asked you what you were smoking, right? Although, although that might have might have been a good question a few years later, uh, I would have looked at you with my mouth hanging open probably and thought, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'd have thought it's. I probably would have jumped right. Yeah, okay, cool. When we get there, right? But. Uh, at, at, but realize too, I was 19 years old and I come, if you watched happy days or if you saw the movie oh, American yeah. graffiti, that was my teenage years, boys. It was, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So, uh, I'd have probably bought in right <laughs> for a while. Uh, but then you'd have been in trouble boys after I'd been around the real wrestling business for a few years. <laughs> Because I'd realize there is no Santa Claus for sure. No, I don't, you know, that's, uh, I got a couple uh, false promises early, you know, and thought, oh, yeah, this is it. This is going to be the big break. And I'm still waiting. <laughs> it wasn't the big break. Uh, but I don't know. You know, I, I, I never thought it at age 19, much past. When, when can I, you know, when I finally got the call to start, I said, yes. And, uh, man, it's been a hell of a roller coaster ride ever since, guys. It certainly has. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if anyone's allowed to, to live their dream this long or not. I don't know if it's against the law. But we won't tell anybody. If it is, I'm an outlaw. I was going to say, secret's safe with us. Kayfabe. Absolutely. All right. Well, a, another show, another series of great stories. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Before we let you go, you mentioned it already. We talked about it on the last show. I'll give you a chance. Plug your podcast. Plug which events you have coming up. Well, I don't have any events coming up. But, yeah, we're now on Spotify and Apple. Uh, Wrestling Weekly, Vic uh, Sosa and myself. And usually it goes up on Fridays. On the Observer site, I guess that still it shows the Observer site on on Spotify and, and uh, Apple. But yeah, we're out there, and uh, I guess at some point we're going to go to video. I'm not not really sure when or or exactly what the progression is going to be. But yeah, so then we're going to start with some guests and and uh, with video. I've got some uh, collectibles that I'll probably st- got some stories to behind and stuff, right? That we'll we'll do too. So. Check us out, please. And uh, talking about the T-shirts, you can get a copy of that Briscoe Brothers uh, Briscoe Booster T-shirt at Wrestling Tees. Nice. There you have it. Again, great last actor. Thank you so much for your time, for being here. And this was uh, the second time you've been with us. I definitely feel like a part three could be in the works in the future. What do you think, Benny? Absolutely. Without a doubt. 
All right. Well, Benny's the booker, right? I mean, we got. I got the pencil. <laughs> right. That's it. Benny's. Keep that damn pencil sharp, man. Yep. Okay. Yeah, guy. Listen, I've I've had fun, and be more than happy to do another one. You guys take care of yourselves, yes, and uh, keep the candle burning. Okay. Absolutely, sir. Thank, Thank you, you again. again. God bless. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care. Benny, that's. That's two hours worth of show now, and we barely, I still feel like we barely scratched the surface of the stories that he could tell us. I'm telling you, anybody who wants a, wants a uh, PhD in professional wrestling, that man's, that man's the professor right there. Right. I, he, when he said that they're looking at bringing guests in in the future, I would love to see some of the people just to, that he, you know, imagine the kind of questions he would come up with to pick somebody's brain. Like I would love, I would love to see that. So nothing but the wish them nothing but success with their podcast and, and their, their shows. And obviously, you know, we've had a great time tonight. We got a lot of you and I've talked offline. We got a lot of good stuff coming up here in the coming weeks and months. So what was that? So we're getting close at episode number 100. That's true. Yeah. We, uh, not 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 too long we'll be hitting it and and again i say but i say before you know you first you know i i looked it up out of curiosity when we first started and they any uh, under the category of sports wrestling entertainment the average length of a podcast series is three episodes before people lose interest or lose audience and here we are you know, well into the 80s pushing it you know we episode 100 before you know it and still having fun still doing our thing so i do look outside after every episode to see if there are people outside with lighted sticks but <laughs> so far so good well that's uh isn't that isn't that why you said you got your real estate license buy some buy some buy some houses where you can hide from the people outside right. with the pitchforks i'll be my own witness protection program <laughs> so, well i mean you already had the uh you you had the episode where your masked cousin came in for out of nowhere. Yeah, we they still haven't found him. He's he's walking around somewhere. <laughs> he's probably probably in Central Europe at this point. He's got a little cardboard sign. We'll work for Polenta, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was recent recently seen crossing parts unknown. <laughs> well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spashano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Take care, folks.